We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I mean, the reason we launched that newsletter is that we developed this, like, very clear understanding that what a lot of people needed was just ideas for a Tuesday. You know, they're busy. They don't want to spend an hour and a half cooking dinner on a weeknight. Um, maybe they have young kids at home. Maybe they just have demanding professional life and they don't actually love to cook. Not everyone loves to cook. And those people needed better service from us. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Emily Weinstein is the food and cooking editor of The New York Times. She also writes the weekly newsletter, Five Weeknight Dishes, which is awesome. I'm a subscriber. Matt, what did you and Emily talk about? Anna, it's an understatement of the century to say that we're major fans of The New York Times cooking and food section here. We read literally every story every week in print and online, and we subscribe to the newsletters. So it was really fun having Emily in to talk about all the things that we want to talk about, which includes how the extremely high-quality sausage is made at the New York Times food desk. We talked about her early career and how she rose from a restaurant reviews listing editor into the role of boss. We also speak about how she developed stories with her amazing stable of writers, many who have appeared on the Taste podcast. The New York Times food desk, if you've not subscribed, you have to do it. Here's Matt talking to Emily. Emily Weinstein, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I uh, have to say, Anna and I are such fans of uh, of what you do at the New York Times. Uh, longtime readers, longtime subscribers, but also you as a person. You've supported Taste. You've been just you've, the little notes and just seeing you at events. We really thank you for that. Thank you. It's so sincere. Um, I remember the the I think it was the first time I actually met you in person, and I was like, I feel like <laughs> I'm meeting someone from one of my favorite bands. <laughs> I, I just really have have appreciated what what y'all been doing uh, for years now. So, so so kind, and and I I want to get into your story because it's a really good one. Um, before you you join the New York Times and the food desk, uh, you are the the food and cooking editor of the New York Times. Yes, you're, you're yes. the boss. Um, <laughs> I uh, you're you're an MFA student uh, and grad at Columbia. So how did you get from MFA Columbia to the New York Times food desk? So um, uh, first of all, you don't need an MFA to work in a newspaper, <laughs> <laughs> but I I do have one. And um, mm-hmm. uh, so I was working at the Village Voice and. Um, and it was just clear there were changes there. The, the voice was about to be sold. And um, and I had a friend who was at Columbia. And, and I always loved to write. And I knew that, you know, I knew that what I wanted to do was either write or be an editor um, or an editor who wrote or, you know, some combination of the two. And so I, uh, I ended up in this uh, program at Columbia um, and nonfiction writing mm-hmm. and um and loved it, totally loved it. And then at the end of my coursework, I, I still had to write a master's thesis. Basically, you have to write a book. And I just needed a freelance job, you know, to support myself while I was still, like, paying Columbia yeah. in order to write this thesis. And I happened to run into a friend of mine who who uh, you might know, J.J. Good. He's yeah. a cookbook author. Um, sure, a columnist for taste, long-time <laughs> Columnist for taste, that's yeah. right. So um, I, I just happened to know J.J., and I ran into him, uh, and he and J.J. and his wife and I are old friends. And I said, yeah, I'm just looking for a freelance job, you know, copy editing fact-checking. That was the sort of work I had done before I went to grad school. And he had heard about some, like, random freelance fact-checking job at the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And I was like, great. Sounds <laughs> great. And I figured it must be for the magazine. I mean, who who else at the Times would be fact-checking? Newspapers don't really do that. Um, but it turned out to be for the food section. Mm-hmm. And I went to the Times, and this was at the old building on 43rd Street. The Times used to have this office that, that really looked like a newspaper from the movies mm-hmm. um, and a newsroom from the movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met Pete Wells, who was the food editor then, and Trish Hall, who who oversaw the feature sections. And um, 
and spoke with them, and they hired me to fact check the restaurant listings database. Yes, <laughs> which is what a grind. Does uh, not a good job, um, <laughs> but it, but it was yeah. a job. I re- I really needed a job, and uh, it was at the New York Times, mm-hmm. and I got a pass. I could go to the office and work at the office. And I remember the first day I I went to the office, and I had no. I loved restaurants, and at the Voice, I had worked with Robert Sietzema. One of my one of my tasks at the Voice was to fact check Robert Sietzema's mm-hmm. column, the food critic there. So counterculture. Yeah, yeah. So I had this real love of of what he did. Um, I loved restaurants. I loved eating out. But I had never really thought about being a food writer or editor. It just wasn't in my frame of reference, really. And I got there and I looked around and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> These are my people. I was like, oh, this is this is good. Um, and I just resolved. I was like, I'm going to I'm going to work like crazy and hopefully I'll get to stay. And so what a cool story. And I, I feel starting from the bottom now we're here some moment with, with this story <laughs> because you really did work your way up. What were some of the jobs after you were, uh, you know, fact checking the restaurant listings? What were some of the other jobs you held on the on the food desk? So uh, when I got hired on staff at the Times, I actually did not get hired on the food desk, but I I, I got hired on the culture desk, which yeah. is those are the art sections of the paper, like the daily art sections, arts and leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, but they needed somebody to do their listings. And they're like, well, you're already doing the restaurant listings. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're checking this database. And by the way, at the Times, at the time, the Times did not really care about its recipe database. They were sitting on this archive of recipes going back to 1981. Um, and they just were totally focused on the restaurant listings. Mm-hmm. And I understood why. I mean, I still understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, so they hired me to do the listings and they hired me in a job that doesn't exist anymore, um, a web producer. Oh, and yeah. back then- Remember those? Remember those, right? <laughs> CMS management. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The CMS. I mean, I've been through so many CMSs yeah. at the New York Times. You know, and the job then was basically you had all these writers and editors who, you know, made the newspaper. They like put together the New York Times and then like, it went to the printing plant and everybody went home. <laughs> and the web producers were there, just like elves in Santa's workshop, you know, putting it all on the control internet. Control C, control V style. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody had any idea what we did yeah. or who we were or what even happened. Um, but it all ended up on nytimes.com. So and that was that was my mm-hmm. job and I focused on the listing. So I was always working with the food section, including I helped launch a uh, a blog that Mark Bittman wrote at the oh. time. So so very early on, I was working really closely with like Mark Bittman of all people, yeah. which is an amazing education. Um, and then uh, some time passed and I got more involved with, with the culture desk and the arts coverage. And then the web producer job on the food desk opened up and back then it was the dining section. Um, so I moved over there. Wow. Um, and I've I've really been there ever since. Um, what year are we talking about? Did you make that switch over? Oh my gosh! I'm I you know time is a river. <laughs> I've yeah. just been doing this for so long. I want to say like 2009. Yeah. Probably. Like what an interesting time for um, digital media for food. Like Eater is is really just starting to pick up steam. You've got places uh, City Search and Metro Mix where I work. We're doing like listing stuff, and then there's like. All sorts of blogs. All sorts of blogs. I mean, and and Grub Street. And, oh, of course, Grub Street, of course. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, a big reason the Times was really interested in, in those restaurant listings is because New York Magazine had a really robust mm-hmm. um, listings database. Also, um, is it Foursquare? Yeah. Foursquare. <laughs> Foursquare. And um, this is before Yelp really took off in New York. I think Yelp was happening in San Francisco at that point. There yeah. were just all these different players in like digital food space, especially restaurants um, and uh, especially listings, you know, this idea of like, hey, can we tell people where to go eat? Yeah, it's really changed so much. And, and the way the recipe has has kind of changed over time. And I, I, I say most legacy media, quote unquote, legacy media places uh, did not put all their database on the Internet. <laughs> like Gourmet is a great example, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward to your current job, uh, which is running um, cooking and food, which is there are two very different aspects. I'd like to hear about the difference. But also I'd like to hear about the your day to day. What is it like running the food desk, running the cooking app, all of these different um, aspects of the New York Times food section? It's really cool, like impressive, too. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's it's fun because everyone's so excited about it. Yeah. Internally, externally, there's just a lot of momentum and excitement around what we're doing in food at the Times um, and NYT cooking. My day to day is a lot of meetings, yeah. um, which I think um, you know, I you know, in between those years of being a web producer and what I do now, you know, I was an editor. I, I edited stories and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff, and. Um, and so now um, I don't edit as much as I used to, which you know was my first love, but but that's cool. But but I do I do talk with people all day, which is really interesting. And the meetings really reflect sort of the vast array of things that we are up to right now. So you know we you know I'll sit at my desk, I'll read some things. I, I usually call into the New York Times newsroom morning news meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be called the Page One. Page meeting. One meeting, of course, famous. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There's documentary about it. So um, I call into that meeting and uh, just get a sense of the news of the day. Um, but as told by the editors running those departments before the news is online. So, you know, the Washington editor is talking about the stories they're following, international editor, whatever the biggest news story of the day is the person. Sarah Palin dining in a restaurant without a mask <laughs> having COVID, maybe. <laughs> yep, maybe that. <laughs> so and, you know, we have editors to go to that meeting, too. So yeah. so usually I start the day um, just listening in on that, um, getting a sense of what's going on. Um, we have a staff meeting uh, every morning just for the um editors and reporters who do um, in the newsroom and the food uh, desk and cooking, um, sort of mm-hmm. the editorial part of the cooking team. You know, we just catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, we have brainstorm sessions. We have ideas meetings. I go to meetings with the um, cooking product leadership team. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, I represent the editorial part of the operation, but, you know, dozens and dozens of people work on NYT cooking, you know, engineers, designers, product managers. Which is a real business for the Times. NYT yeah, cooking, the app. Huge business for the Times. They announced in December we passed a million subscribers. Amazing. Cooking. So cool. Thank you. Hey, nobody ever thought that would be possible for a recipe website. So so we're pretty excited about that. But uh, I speak with those people. I speak yeah. with the marketing people. I speak with the other. I go to meetings with the other leaders of the other features desks at the Times, you know, culture styles. Mm-hmm. Um, I meet with writers on our team. I meet with writers outside the paper, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff all the time. Uh, it sounds like the meetings um, take over uh, your your life with, with in, in any you know, job of leadership, that, that's the case. But also, it sounds like you have are an editor at heart and you want to make sure the stories um, are executed. Are, do you dip in with your pen once in a while? Um, <laughs> I do. You know, it's it's um, I think you have to kind of let people, you know, you have every editor is going to edit a story a little differently and you have to let people do what they're going to do. But but yeah, I, I read our stories before they go live for the most part. Sometimes some get by me, but, you know, I really try to read them all at least. And um, and usually I'm like, great. And then every yeah. once in a while I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about this. And, um, you know, we kind of go from there. I'm sure what you're not saying, too, is that um, your staff comes to you with, like, the hard questions, too, because I'm sure that there are I mean, you're not covering just cooking. Like to be clear to our to our listeners, um, the the culture aspect of food covering in your times is is tremendous. You know, Priya Krishna, friend of taste and and contributor, is doing some some of the work. Eric Kim as well is like reporting on the world of food. So I'm sure you have some tough. Were there any tough decisions? Not getting into any specifics, but like what types of questions do you get often? Well, you know, we and in addition, you know, so to just a, a little more context there. So, yeah. So we're producing MIT cooking. Right. So this is this enormous recipe um, resource, this app. Um, but we're also producing investigations. Sure. You know, two of our reporters won a Pulitzer for their Me Too coverage um, with the reporting on Ken Friedman and the Spotted Pig. It was Kim Severson and Julia Moskin, amazing reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're doing investigations, reporting news about the restaurant industry. We're um, writing feature stories about food culture in America. Yeah. You know, we're producing restaurant criticism. Um, we're doing all kinds of things. Uh, tough questions. You know, usually it's sort of about picking our shots. Um, you know, where are we going to put our energy? Where are we going to put our resources? How do we want to shape the story? We're also just one part of the New York Times, you know. Um, uh, so is it like, well, well, should we do this or should we see if Metro is going to do it? Or mm. Should we do this or is is going to cover it. That's mm-hmm, the business desk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a lot of that, like understanding, like how are we going to proceed on something tricky, or how do we want to think about this tricky thing, 
and how are we going to move forward on it? Makes a lot of sense. We we have to pick our battles to a taste. It's it's important when you have limited um, resources. You can't do every story, and you have to like take a pick your swings. You mentioned reviews, and I have to ask: Do you go to any review uh, meals with Pete? Pete's been on the podcast, and we've talked about his process and his deadline anxiety, as everyone has. But do you do you go to to dine with him? I have in the past. You know, sadly, I don't go anywhere anymore yeah, <laughs> right yeah. now because yeah, of COVID. Well, I dine out very. I'm not dining with anyone so much right now. But yeah. um, I did before COVID. Um, not a ton, um, but I go out with Pete sometimes. Pete, if you hear this, I, <laughs> I am available again. Um, you know, the last <laughs> throw throw some time on my cow. It can be after five. It can be five thirty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it's really I mean look it is really fun to go out to eat with with Pete um yeah. I just really enjoy talking with Pete I think he's a remarkable thinker and so interesting and fun to talk to he's so funny and um last time I ate with Pete I'm trying to remember I think it was in 2019 we went to the Second Avenue Deli. <laughs> wow. And it was not for a review. I remember oh. meeting him and we were supposed to go somewhere nearby and the place was was closed unexpectedly. And he was like, ah, oh, you know, for Pete, every meal kind of has to count. You know, he has to eat at so many restaurants yeah. in order to do the work that he does. So we're like, all right, well, how are we going to salvage this? <laughs> and we just walked over to the Second Avenue Deli. And um, I'm pretty sure we had pastrami sandwiches Good and uh, celeries and oh. pickles. I'm sure I had matzo ball soup. I can't imagine leaving the Second <laughs> Avenue Deli without having matzo ball soup. So, uh, so yeah, it was not a review meal, but it was great. It was a great meal. I've had the pleasure <laughs> of dining with him as well. And, and he is is really, uh, I mean, he was a culture editor before food. So he obviously has a lot of great, he has great taste in, yeah. in, in music and film and just cool dude. And I'm waiting for my invite too, Pete, as well. So <laughs> yeah. if you're listening. And Pete, we're here. <laughs> Um, I have to talk about you as a writer because you write a weekly newsletter as well in addition to all this work um, called Five Weeknight Dishes. And I I love it. It's really well written. It's very tightly packaged and you're an editor at heart. Do you get deadline anxiety? (laughs) Every week you got to do this thing? You know, no. You know, writing requires a muscle and you work the muscle every week. You know, it's, it's, you know, if you try to get on a treadmill and run a mile and you haven't done it in a long time, it's going to be really hard. You know, you do it several times a week. You know, you're going to be fine. And um, but I am a terrible procrastinator. Um, Who isn't? I know, but I'm bad, and I'm like not supposed to be bad, right? Like I'm supposed to be good. I need to like be the change I want to see in the world around <laughs> deadlines and procrastination. But um, but no, um, I just know it's just something I have to do, and it's something I love to do. Yeah. Um, and um, for me, it, it keeps me writing and. Um, you know, I'm not a recipe developer. I, I'm yeah. I'm not a culinary professional. I'm I'm an editor. I'm a writer yeah. and I'm an editor who loves food. I'm I'm quite a passionate home cook, and so really, I'm just like a fan. So it, it keeps me really closely tied to the recipe development work we do at NYT Cooking. It and it, you know, I'm just constantly cooking from the app. I want to know what our writers are doing. I want to know what's new. I want to know what's interesting, and then I get to tell people about it. So. Um, and it also keeps me close to readers. I, th- I think it's a way of yeah. sort of showing appreciation for them and their needs. I mean, the reason we launched that newsletter is that we developed this like very clear understanding that like what a lot of people needed was just ideas for a Tuesday. You know, they're busy. Um, you know, they don't want to spend an hour and a half cooking dinner on a weeknight. Um, maybe they have young kids at home. Maybe they just have demanding professional life and they don't yeah. actually love to cook. Not everyone loves to cook. Um, yeah. And um, and those people needed better service from us. Um, and you, you, you just edit it in a cool way where you pick the right things and you say the right words. I mean, it really is encouraging. And I appreciate – wish you would write more, to be honest, because just talking to you, it just you've got a lot to say. Oh, thank you. I mean it. <laughs> they, I, I love writing, and, and I always loved writing, and it was one of the only things I ever did um, where I would lose the time. You know, I would lose track of time. Such such is my love of sitting there and doing it. However, it's, like, really hard to just, like, sit and do it, and that's the procrastination, you know. Speaking of writing and writers, your team um, has greatly expanded in the past couple of years. You've scooped up amazing talents. Um, some are, are familiar for taste. Pre Krishna, Eric Kim, Christina Morales, Genevieve Coe as an editor, Brett Anderson. Um I just want to say and ask you, like, what makes a New York Times reporter and why do you hire somebody? 
Oh, such a good question. Um, and those are all extraordinary talents, right? Sure. Just and and extraordinarily skilled. You know, it's not just about talent; it's about skill and and work. And um, a, a really great New York Times reporter. First of all, you know, again, reporting is a craft. Reporting is a skill. You know, people who have really honed honed those skills and worked at their craft. Um, people who know how to spot a story, know how to shape a story for a national audience, um, are sort of fearless in thinking about stories. And, you know, you also have to be a good writer yeah. <laughs> and you have to file on deadline. So it, so it, it really is a, a tall order. You have to be able to work quickly, um, you know, and to be able to do that you know, at the at the level that the Times wants to be working, you know, it's hard. Um, and also, these are people who all really understand the food space, whether it's home cooking or the food industry or cookbooks. Um, they all bring some sort of specialty in terms of, of how they approach the beat. It's a remarkable blend of skills. And you've said it so well. And I just want to add just the weight of having the New York Times as your byline is, is there. And um, I've written for the Times. It, it, there's an, an absolute. Um, there's a serious dedication to to the byline and and really and the masthead, I guess you could say. Um, so I think the fact that you put out so much under this with this pressure is is remarkable. Thanks. Hey, you know it's it's the job, um, and it's very. It's too bad we're not all like physically in the newsroom. Um, yeah. At the office, I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, you should come. Uh, I've never been. Open. Actually, I've I've seen it in film and television. <laughs> no, you should come when, when <laughs> and <it's> winning open. <laughs> Pulitzers. <laughs> when when we can like have people come again, you yeah. should come. Cool. Um, there's just this tremendous energy there, especially at the end of the day when deadline is approaching. Um, it's really cool and it really helps carry you along. How do you develop your your stories with your staff? Um, do you? I know that you have. You said you have ideas meetings, um, and then so you self generate you and your editorial staff. But are you also accepting pitches from like a Priya Krishna writer? Is she pitching you ideas or Eric? How's that work? Yeah, you know, well, it it comes about a, a couple different ways. First of all, if news is breaking, it's breaking, mm -hmm. and we're looking to see like, okay, which of our reporters can handle it right now? Oh, that's another skill you have to be able to do breaking news, yeah. which is hard. You know, no one really does it in food. I mean, Eater does it really well too, but it's it's very rare. Yeah, and they look. There's not a ton of breaking news in food the way there is on like. Metro, you yeah. know, you you cover the city, you cover the courts, or you know, you, there's breaking news. Um, uh, we don't have as much breaking news, but it definitely mm -hmm. happens. And and so if news comes, that's one thing. Um, yeah, we have ideas meetings for sure, and assignments come out of that. I will say the best ideas, you know, reliably come from reporters, and most of the time they're discussing them kind of with each other, with their mm -hmm. colleagues, with and principally, you know, with their editor. Mm -hmm. Um, and thinking about, okay, are we going to do this? When are we going to do it? Just working out the logistics and also sort of shaping it. And, you know, and that, that makes perfect sense to me that more ideas would come from reporters and writers than from editors. You know, COVID has, you know, mm -hmm. messed with this a little bit. But generally speaking, like, you don't find ideas at your desk. You don't find ideas mm -hmm. at the office. You can from reading. Obviously, the Internet, you know, <laughs> there, there are stories there. Um, but really the best ideas come from being out in the world and talking to people. We call it pre-reporting and when we take on pitches, we, we require it. I mean, you're, what you're saying is what we experience every day. Like we, we get an idea, but it's like you need to pre-report it. Mm -hmm. It's just so important, but it's, you bring up COVID and, and Anna and I struggle with this too. It's like, you, you can't get out in the world as much. Yeah, no, it's really, really hard. It's I mean, hard. and that's why you get, you know, you get ideas from people and, and, and look like absolutely you need to cover food culture online and like you don't need to be out in the world to cover food culture online but we don't just do that we do all kinds of things in order for for the report to feel dynamic you need people who are out in the world looking around bringing those stories you know to you mm -hmm. the editors i think do um a really good job of thinking about sort of like big picture lines of coverage um packages big projects yeah. um sort of franchise ideas editors i think are really good at sort of conceiving of those and thinking about like okay like here is this here is this bucket and like what are we putting in it and mm -hmm. how do we want to think about that mm -hmm. without spoil spoiling any 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 surprises what are what are you working on right now are there any are there any topics that you feel like you've had across your desk this past couple of weeks that you want to talk about? 
Ah, uh, well, we like the element of surprise. Yes, <laughs> so as we, do we do we do have a few really big things planned for 2022 that I can't yeah. I can't talk about yet, but there I this is tantalizing, it's going to be great. Personally, of course, I you know, the big stories to me this year are uh the restaurant industry. Yeah. What's going to happen? Um, you know, and there's so many different storylines that thread through the restaurant industry. And then uh, climate change. Um, and climate change coverage in food, you know, has persisted all these many years through COVID. But but there was this huge moment in 2019 where there was quite a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And then in 2020, the, the, the focus shifted because COVID w- was such a shock yeah. to, the, to the whole world, to the whole system. Um, and, you know, all the while we've been producing stories that touch on climate change. But but I think in a more concerted way, we're going to come back to it this year. What makes a good climate change uh, food story? I, I ask this because we we are pitched them often. Um, we can't publish as much as you, but we try to publish um, as much climate change coverage. It is the biggest story of our generation right now in food. But we've struggled with finding an audience. And it's just sometimes... It's either people don't want to hear or read about certain topics. Sometimes it's uh, too uh, obscure. Or sometimes it's too like if you watch Don't Look Up, it's it's too far in the future. Um, so, what makes a good story? Oh, you know, and I should say too, the the Times has a whole desk devoted to yeah, climate change coverage. You do. So, um, and they're always doing work, and there's climate coverage across almost all the desks at the times in, in various ways. So so institutionally, you know, it's it's a priority and a big story. Um, one among many, but but a priority. Um, you know, I think you're right. It's too abstract. Um, there's this impending sense of doom, but it's just too hard to wrap your heads around and and and, and maybe that's just the limit of the human mind. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. But um, you know, we see a lot of stories about waste and we see a lot of stories about agricultural shifts. I actually find the agricultural shift stories compelling because it's like, oh, my God, like Vermont is going to have the climate of North Carolina and yeah. what are they going to grow there? Things like that, you know, because I can it conjures an image in my mind. Um, I think a lot of I think something that I find missing from a lot of climate coverage is actually just actionable information. I think part of that is because yeah. actionable information is so confused and, and confusing mm-hmm. and, it, it you know, it's very easy to feel hopeless. It's like, well, what does it mean if I give up X, Y, or Z? Like, does that really make a difference? Mm-hmm. And somebody over here is saying, well, no, it's really about policy. But but you still want to do something. And, mm-hmm. and I think about that a lot. And I think about, okay, you know, we report. We also provide service. Like, NYT cooking is service. Yeah. And how do we bring some of that thinking into how we think about climate change? Why it's such an interesting job that you have because you do blend pure service journalism and, and like how to put dinner on the table, quote unquote, with like big ideas and big swings. And it's remarkable. I want to know outside of the time staff, are there anybody, is there anybody in food writing that you have enjoyed? Anybody on Twitter even? Um, I know you don't have time to, to read everybody, but I, you know, I always want to give editors a chance to kind of give a little shout out. Well, I mean, I think Helen Rosner at the New Yorker is just like a genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and, yeah. and like big fan friend, everything fan of the she's done. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I've, I don't really know Helen. I've like met her once or twice in passing. Um, so I'm just a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything she does, even you know, she'll post an Instagram story about something, and she'll something that is kind of percolating, but it's in the air, and she finds a way to talk about it, and in ways that are compelling and funny and you know she's she's just a genius um i really admire her work um salejo yeah i mean i think it's been really thrilling to see what salejo is doing in san francisco i mean she's just doing Mm -hmm. the job totally differently from anyone who's done Mm -hmm. the job before those are the two people who really come to mind who i I don't who i don't work with i i love all the new york Times. yeah as do we (laughs) no i think soleil deserves a shout out um and I think she is doing it differently. I think the way she covers San Francisco and the Bay Area as a critic jumps outside of like just reviewing restaurants. And, you know, she's extremely creative. I have to just say that outside of having great taste and just really doing the job and doing putting in the work, great taste. Yeah. I mean, yeah. honestly, I mean, she's really conceived of the job differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it's I don't, it's really it's really exciting um, to to sort of track like, oh, wow. You know, yeah. just just the way she's doing it. Um, I also I read quite a lot. I mean, mostly like in my free time, I'm I'm not reading about food. I you know I yeah. I read a lot of fiction. I read 
you know, I, I there are a lot of Times writers who don't work for food who I'm just kind of obsessed with and I'll read anything <laughs> they write. Um, so. Yeah, I love that answer. Let's talk about your own home cooking because I want to uh, dive into you are a passionate home cook. You say you're not professional, but I think by now you know your way around a home kitchen. Um, so in general, what excites you personally as a home cook? And then I guess the second part of the question is, as an editor, um, are there any home cooking concepts or trends that you really want to acknowledge as like something you're interested in? So what excites me as a home cook is just the days when I feel excited to cook. <laughs> and I only say that because, you know, of COVID, I'm, I'm, I mean, there were days where I was like, I never want to walk into this kitchen. Oh my gosh, again. right? Oh. So, like, when I start to feel excited, that alone is like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and um, I do feel like my, my, I was pretty confident before COVID. I do feel like my cooking has gotten a lot better just because yeah. cooking is another craft and it just rewards <laughs> repetition. Yeah. And I see that in my own cooking. I'm, I I see like I see the improvements and I'm really excited about them. And they're like tiny things and they're easy things for a professional mm-hmm. cook. Like mm-hmm. nobody would even think about this if you're a professional cook. But for me, like, I'm self-taught. I'm a home cook. It's, mm-hmm. it's great. Um, what I'm excited about. So <laughs> I am in a certain exclusive bean club. Oh, right. <laughs> that <laughs> the Rancho Gordo Bean Club, which I coincidentally happened to sign up for before the pandemic. So I'm just like constantly looking in my cabinet and being like, oh, my God, I have all these things to use up. And some of these are beans I've cooked with forever. Mm-hmm. And some of them I like never cooked with and never would have bought myself. It just wouldn't have occurred to me. And so I feel like I'm constantly kind of looking at what's in my cabinet and being like, all right. I mean, it's the same way I think people used to talk about their CSA boxes. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, um, my husband and I decided a while ago, like, hey, we really have to eat less meat, which mm-hmm. is really, that was a personal choice. Um, truly, mm-hmm. wouldn't push it on anybody. My no. choice. Um, and I, I realized pretty recently that, like, we used to really have to think about it. I, you know, I, I, might not shock you to learn I do all the meal planning in, in our uh, home. Um, and I, definitely no yeah. Um, my husband can cook, actually, but um, we're, this is revealing. People often assume that my husband can't cook. That's bullshit, man. <laughs> it is bullshit. That's bullshit. It shouldn't be the case. I think that a healthy partnership, you know, you're, you're, yeah. you're chipping in and that's a modern household. And Yeah, yeah, on. yeah. People assume he's like, oh, he must not cook. I was like, Cooks. Yeah, um, uh, so, um, but I do, I do, I do plan the meals, and I'm happy to do it. And I'd rather do that than like you know, yeah. clean the bathroom. So, um, I uh, in the beginning when thinking about changing our eating habits, I used to have to think about it a lot. And I, I realized pretty recently that I don't have to think about it much anymore. Like the transition has been made, and it's just mm-hmm. the way a habit sort of settles into your life and and that was actually a really cool moment for me to think like oh like we're there we're not cooking as much meat right we're there yeah 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 it used to be something i had to think about and now it's just like i look at you know what i bought i look at what i'm thinking about cooking and i'm like ah you know and and that feels good it's a great feeling and and like uh, let's go back to the beans because i'm also a a rancho gordo head myself i'm not in the club i am on the the waiting list but i do have quite a bit of stock and so what i i've been doing the 15 minute hard boil so after like a two to three hours soak Mm -hmm. i never plan like 12 to 24 hours at a time i do a hard boil uh for 15 minutes but backing up i usually do like onion and and i've been doing lemon a lot and just searing Mm -hmm. lemon peel um and shallot um and then a lot of spices and and variety mostly chilies um ancho um so are you 15 minute hard boil (laughs) let's talk beans let's go there um so i've been futzing around with this for a little bit because for a while i was just like putting them in the Instant Pot. Oh, word. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. just putting them in the Instant Pot and figuring it out. And cooking, a, I would cook a lot. I would cook the whole pound. Now I'm just cooking a half pound at a time. But it's pretty wasteful when you go to the full pound. Yeah, and you just yeah well, you know, I use them all up. But yeah, yeah. by the time it's, we're done with them, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't eat this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So I was doing the Instant Pot, but, you know, you get really inconsistent results with yeah. the Instant Pot. Um, and I have finally accepted that. And I <laughs> and I do it sometimes, like even, I don't know, two nights ago. can't even remember what I was going to cook for dinner, but for some reason it did not come to fruition. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to go downstairs. I'm going to put the black beans in the Instant Pot. We have tortillas. We have chilies. We have this. We have that. You know, put together a pretty tasty dinner um and the beans were fine you know but now i'm doing like when i cook them on the stovetop 
I actually do try to soak them. I know you don't have to. I do. Yeah. Um, and then I'll do like a 10-minute hard boil, and then I'll go to a low simmer, and I'll cover the pot. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I do salt. I know some people don't. I know this is controversial. You salt right away, or you don't. You don't salt at the end. You salt before. I salt or the, salt through. I salt the cooking water. Yeah. You know, I salt the cooking water, um, and then I, you know, I salt at the end. I'm not salting all the way through. But some people, yeah, would say don't salt. Some people would say don't salt until the very last moment, or even upon serving, and let the diner, the 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 person eating, salt. But I'm with you. I, I need to salt throughout, or at yeah. least the beginning. Um, I love Steve Sando. Have you have you met him? I've never met him. No, I would love to meet him. I want to meet him. I, I it's not just because I want to be in his club. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a celebrity in my world. <laughs> and by my world, I mean my home. <laughs> yeah, your home. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, a few more questions. I want to know uh, your favorite food is ice cream. Is that real or is that just from Twitter? Twitter <laughs> no, no, that's or real. your website. Okay. No, no, that's totally real. Like. Isn't everyone's favorite food ice cream? No, but that's that's okay. <laughs> I love it. So tell me why um, why ice cream? You've actually covered ice cream quite a bit in the New York Times. <laughs> now it makes sense. I really sense. love ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what makes good ice cream? Okay, we'll get there. Let's go there. What, what makes, makes good ice yeah, cream? Yeah. Oh my god. Oh. That's too big a question. It's I know. like you're asking me about God. I know. I, anyway, I, um, <laughs> I uh, what makes good ice cream? I love ice cream that is is very creamy and I don't like delicate flavors. I mean, I do like delicate flavors, but I'm totally cool with ice cream just like beating you over the head with the flavors. Like I uh, I used to live quite close to the um, first Ample Hills location. Yeah. <laughs> in Gowanus or Parslope? Parslope. Um, the one on Vanderbilt and Prospect yeah, Van- Heights. I used, to, yeah. I used to live near there and um, oh man, <laughs> I go there a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then go on a soap and we go there. Anyway, so um, that really creamy, lots of mix-ins, you know, yeah. um, not super sweet. You know, I'm not like a Cold Stone person, um, but, uh, oh, that sort of silky, super premium. You know, mm-hmm. I like eggy ice cream, too, um, uh, not Philadelphia style. Like, yeah. I like, I like, like an eggy. Yeah. I love that, and you. I love that your team mix in your team like Ben and Jerry's. Not you know, you know, you like the the chunky stuff. Yeah. Hey, look, like <laughs> I've you know the pandemic gave me time to meditate on things like what's my preferred vanilla ice cream. Yeah. And like you really kind of can't beat Hagen Dazs. Hagen Dazs. I know, right? Have you had the Ben and Jerry's vanilla? Right, I, should I have. It's on not specific good. Specific brand. I will. And it's not good. <laughs> I but you know but like also like Hagen Dazs chocolate peanut butter like. So good. I uh, so interviewed good. Ina Garten long ago, and she said she melts down a full pint of Hagen Dazs to make creme anglaise. It's like basically the same thing. Oh my god! I think that's genius, and I think that is the perfect ice cream—the Hagen Dazs vanilla. She's so fabulous. Just yeah. hearing that just made my heart beat a little faster. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what, that's what I want to do. <laughs> she's great. She's, she is great. She's great, and she's got books coming along. She she's just a, a real national treasure. And we were doing a. Uh, Anna and I are going to riff about banned words. Okay. Because we have our list of banned words on taste. Do you have a banned word list for the New York Times? Oh, I thought you meant banned B-A-N-D. Okay, so I'll do that again. And I was like, are you naming your band? (laughs) (laughs) Banned words. Like, like, like the words that are banned, like we do not like one of them is unctuous. We just cannot print the word unctuous in in taste. Like unctuous is not happening. Like it is. There's like something we put into our CMS where it does not allow. This is a great question in part because um, we were talking about this not so long ago in the Food Desk Slack channel at work. You know, we have we have a Slack channel, as everyone does. Um, <laughs> so my colleague Patrick Farrell, who is. Um, an editor on food and like a long time editor. Shout out to Times. Patrick Farrell, of course. Shout out to, do you know Patrick? I've never met Patrick Farrell. I know of him and he's an amazing editor. He is an amazing editor. Yeah. I've heard it said that he is one of the best editors of the New York Times. And like, I believe that. And also Patrick is just like a lovely colleague and a generous soul. Yeah. Um, he's just amazing. Um, so anyway, Patrick, long time editor, yeah. <laughs> has a list of words that he does not want in the food section. And it came to light recently that Priya Krishna, who has worked with Patrick for a really long time now, he's been her editor for a long time, like kept a running list of those words. 
Like words, like words. Patrick hates her. Anyway, so if I'm remembering right, okay, Lux, (laughs) foodie. We don't like foodie. Um, Oh my god, Luscious. Also, we tried to avoid Luscious. Does get in Lux? However, is totally banned. Oh my god, I need to think of other ones. I'm so sorry. I can't think of those are really good ones. I think Lux and Luscious. um, We, I think Moist is definitely on the edge. I mean, Moist means something specific, so we have to print it. But our our other one, I think, is Bistro when referring to a restaurant that is not a French origin bistro, bistro. Mm -hmm. Just calling it like a Vietnamese bistro or calling a restaurant a concept. Oh my god. Like, banned, you know. Banned. <laughs> it's a restaurant or a deli. Like, it's that's like that's like use a use a noun, use a yeah. different noun. Um, yeah. Concepts. So the Times actually in the style book doesn't want you to use the word launch, um, mm-hmm. even for a website. Mm-hmm. Um, launching is for rockets. It is not for companies. Digital it media. Is, <laughs> it is not for restaurant concepts. So. Um, one thing you won't see in the New York Times, unless it has snuck through, is the idea that you would like launch a restaurant or launch a takeout business. Very cool. Uh, yeah. I think of uh, along the lines, I, I think pr- program, when you say something has a program, yeah. like a, a really excellent olive oil program. Yeah. Not happening. We don't. Yeah, we don't really do that. <laughs> we I think we do wine program. I'm pretty sure we do wine program, but no, 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 no more programming. And also um, at some point curators yeah. left the world of the arts and moved throughout the world of <laughs> culture. <everything>. Word. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Emily, we ask all guests in the Taste Podcast if there was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on personally without a deadline or a budget. Um, It was just you and this project. What would that cookbook be? So, and partly this is COVID, right? But I think I I would have said this anyway. Like, what I want to do is (laughs) I would want it to be a book or some other project where I just travel around the world eating and like at a totally leisurely pace (laughs) and I just go for as long as I need to go and like you know I'm like bye I'm so so I'm just I have to go it's for this project I have to I'm sorry I can't help but I have to go travel around the world and eat at a leisurely (laughs) pace that is totally what I would want to do the other one so I love sweets I mean we just talked about ice cream for a while but I really, really love to bake. And ever since I was a kid, I just like, I have the craziest sweet tooth. Um, and, um, you know, I, I did always think like, oh, it'd be really fun to do like a pastry course, like to really learn how to bake in, in that kind of way. And it would be really awesome to work on a cookbook, like a baking cookbook, where everything was delicious and really tasty and it magically just turned out great like the first time and there was not a lot of like extensive testings or revision and just like a magical book of treats <laughs> that I baked and and recipes and you know I hey look like I so I'm not a recipe developer right I don't I don't do that and I have such reverence for that work it is so hard to do that work well I I have so much admiration Mm -hmm. for the great cookbook authors I know, Mm -hmm. the recipe writers I know, the the ones I don't know and I really Mm -hmm. admire, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I I don't think I could write that dessert book. But in a magic plane. Yeah. Like, yes, that is what I would I love that answer. It's like you you want to have the perfect brownie, but like on the first shot, not the like 17th Doris Greenspan, like 17th draft, which is obviously what it takes her to do it. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's a legend. She's a legend. Yeah. Emily Weinstein, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So, Anna, at Taste, we work with words basically all the time. When we aren't recording podcasts, we're typically in front of our computers, hammering away at newsletters, articles, tweets, all the written stuff that you see in the pages of Taste. This is to say, Anna, that we take our words extremely seriously. It's also to say that there are certain words that we have effectively banned from the pages of Taste. That's right. And there are lots of reasons as an editor to ban a word. Sometimes it's offensive. Sometimes it's a cliche because 
we're reading, food writing all the time, and sometimes these cliches just pop out at us. And sometimes it's just a word that feels kind of gross and like we can't get over it. <laughs> Not delicious, the opposite of tasty. Yeah, sometimes there are these words that just like are like nails on a chalkboard basically <laughs> to an editor. So what's an example of a band word in your minds that you're always going to cross out from a draft? I have a word, but I want to back up and say uh, on the note of cliche, I had an editor who called it out one time in an edit. Um, yeah, that's a cliche. And I felt kind of bad at the moment. But then I was like, man, that was actually really great that he or I can't remember who he or she had acknowledged this. And so I started doing it as an editor pretty, pretty rigorously. And I feel like I'm passing on that gift. I, I think I have a good tone with, with most writers. But when you get called out for a cliche, it's actually really nice in writing. Yeah, it sort of like challenges our writing muscles to work a little bit harder. Exactly. Like we lean into the – we have muscle memory for certain words. So, But for me, this isn't a cliche. It's just a really, 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 really bad word. It's called uh, – well, it's not called. It's, it is the word unctuous. Yuck. <laughs> Yuck. So by definition, unctuous means oily or having a greasy or soapy feel. Is that that's like Merriam Webster definition? <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was like actually the definition. Exactly, that's disgusting. That's the that's the definition. It has nothing to do with with food, uh, or, or delicious food. Oftentimes, that word is used when referring to a meat item, a meat item having um, oil or having like a great mouthfeel. Also, a banned word, and people use it and. Uh, it is uh, gross. It's disgusting. I'm with you there. How about you, Anna? What's one of your ban words? So this is one that I didn't even really like realize was a bad cliche until Kathy Irway wrote a story about it for Taste a few years ago. And that is using the word soy as shorthand for soy sauce. Um, it happens all the time, like like restaurant menus, recipe head notes. Um, chefs cooking something on TV, they'll just mention like making a sauce with soy and garlic and honey, for instance. Um, but it, as Kathy points out, soy as a plant is actually one of the largest industrial products in the world. And it's used for so many things, like I think like car seats even mm -hmm. and like livestock feed. And even in the food world, soy can make up so many different tastes and textures. It's like every style of tofu comes from the soy plants. Edamame comes from it. Soy sauce, um, miso. There are hundreds of ingredients that come from this plant. Mm -hmm. So sort of realizing that, I realized how lazy it is to just say soy when we really mean soy sauce. Soy sauce. And I think that made that edit many times since that wonderful piece by Kathy. And it's like definitely just respect for the soybean and how it's integrated into our lives. And you use the word lazy and that might come off as a little aggressive. And, and but I use it. I believe that writers need to be pushed. And as you said, the muscle memory sometimes needs to be challenged. And there's definitely moments where writers will file a draft where it's like definitely they were listening to themselves talk or the Food Network talk. And I think that's the voice that tastes that we want to have on taste. And it's not really great in a reading experience. Totally. I mean, when you're reading a word, you want it to be specific and accurate. Yeah. So in 2018, James Hansen wrote a story for taste called Why Does Every Recipe Have to Be Magic? Which was great. And he wrote, a tried and tested recipe isn't good enough. We need the unexpected, the relevatory, the remarkable. Just this past week, New York Times food editor Sam Sifton wrote that the combination of Chinese five by salt, chicken stock, and star anise was, quote-unquote, pretty magic on some pressure cooker chicken legs destined for a grilled cheese. Roasted canard with hot cheese between bread hardly requires a spell book, and yet here we are. What a great line from James. I feel like he went in pretty hard on the idea of magic. What do you think about the use of the word magic in food writing? I totally get why people use it because in a, in a lot of ways, cooking is like magic. You're combining these ingredients, sometimes even in a cauldron, 
and uh, <laughs> a, a pot of yeah. spells. Yeah. And sometimes like something really beautiful and unexpected comes out of it. So I get why people associate it with magic. But also, I'm so tired of reading that mm-hmm. word when it comes to recipes. And in the piece, uh, I believe Hansen interviewed Ch- Sonia Chopra, now Bon Appetit, and uh, she had a great reasoning. Calling your crispy chicken grounded or subject to scientific realities of applying heat to proteins wouldn't be the clickiest bait despite its highly practical approach. I think that was great. It's true. Yeah. The idea of magic is much more compelling. So let's do a speed round. What are you thinking? Are there some other band words? Totally. Okay. So addictive, we don't really use at taste, partially just because I think it undermines the experience of addiction. So that's that's a band word for us. Another one, um, just like is hmm. out of my own personal taste, the word toothsome, I really don't like. It's overused and it's usually misused. The definition mm-hmm. is really just about something that's delicious or like really appealing. Mm-hmm. But people use toothsome often to refer to like the texture and having a little bit of a bite or like a chew to it. So that's another banned one mm-hmm. for me. Another one that's popped up a lot recently is the word frizzled when people mean fried. <laughs> You're so annoyed by this. We had a long slack conversation recently about the frizzled versus fried. You were You were really, really frustrated that day. If any listeners actually know for a fact that frizzled means something different than fried, please let me know. Otherwise, <laughs> I mean, let's just call it fried let's if it's fried. fried. Let's go with fried. Yeah. All right. So speed round. What what are a few more of yours? I have a few that come to mind, but they're always there's always they're always popping up. But one is bistro. I think bistro is great for the French uh, restaurant of, of the Provence of France, and like it comes from France, and there's definitely some kind of French connection. But like calling it a Vietnamese bistro, a modern Indian bistro, eh, banned. I also I don't like the word gastro being used um, in certain um, like in phrases like. Uh, gastro pub was something that was popular in the early 2000s. Uh, I feel gastro uh, is just not just not that appealing, though I like gastro obscura. I think that's actually a good name. So they may they, they get the pass for, as a brand. Um, I also just I don't like moist. I think it comes back to that word. I feel like saying it out loud even, but also seeing it in in writing. I know it's specific. And like in baking recipes, particularly, you want to like, like uh, emphasize uh, the outcome of the of the of the sheet cake recipe is a moist cake, but is there anything that we could say instead of moist, Anna? What do you think? I don't know. It's so hard because cakes, especially, are something very specifically that you usually don't want them to be wet, ex- except for like maybe with a tres leches cake or like yeah. a similar style cake that's sort of like soaked. But moist does kind of describe yeah. the texture of really good cake well. So it's so hard. I don't think it's banned from taste. All right. So moist is back on the list. Back on the list. So if you've written moist in on a taste article, you're, you're safe. Thanks, Anna. It was nice talking to you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.